right, welcome back to the podcast and everything. I am back again with Peter Flood, who did an NFL playoff um, preview with us, and now he's back talking about his profession. Hey, how's it going? It's a pretty cool profession, so we're going to get into it. He works down in Florida, so why don't you kind of first start off and tell us what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm a, a PhD student at Florida International University in Miami, and I work in an aquatic, aquatic ecology lab, and we are involved in a number of long-term monitoring programs uh, for both fish and invertebrates, uh, anything that is less than 8 centimeters pretty much that lives in the water down there, so that the Everglades are a, a giant swamp, more or less, with tree islands, and when you're, when you're out there, you're just kind of sitting on the boat looking out, at the right angle you can't even tell there's water because there's so much grass, it's called the river of grass. And the uh, red tides have been in the news a lot with Florida, so that is directly related to uh, the Everglades and Everglades restoration. So the, the Everglades are uh, what's called a very a karstic wetland, which essentially just means that they are on top of limestone. And as a result of that, there's no phosphorus in the water. So that uh, phosphorus is a, a nutrient in a lot of fertilizers, there's a lot of farmland in central Florida, so you get all of this runoff, and then there's nitrogen, phosphorus, all this stuff runs off into the water, and it sits in Lake Okeechobee, and then it can't go anywhere, because there's, uh, there's legislature that controls the amount of phosphorus that can go into water that ends up in the Everglades. So to prevent too much phosphorus from getting into the Everglades, they pump water out east and west, and then you get, uh, well, you can at least exacerbate a red tide that way. So a lot of what we do is we look at how uh, flow impacts the fish communities and the invertebrate communities in the Everglades. The Everglades is a completely managed artificial system at this point. Uh, parts of it look untouched, but the canal system in South Florida is so expansive that none of the flow is what it was uh, even a hundred years ago. Really the canal system started at the turn of, I believe, the 19th century. So they've been there a long time now. And that, there's gates and valves and levees, all kinds of stuff that's controlling the water that goes in and out. And they try to, they're try they trying to restore the flow and increase flow. But as you do that, you're playing with those phosphorus levels. So we look at to make sure uh, that the fish community and the plant communities change as phosphorus increases. So we look to see if we can see that response as a result of increasing flow to make sure the water that's coming in is, is clean or low enough in phosphorus to not uh, cause community succession or community change over time that results in a, a new ecosystem that is not the ecosystem that we're trying to maintain. And how much does Florida a year put into these Everglades? Of, uh, millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> and not just Florida, but the federal government because it's a national park. And Everglades restoration is, is federally mandated by Congress. So the all all the decisions that are made are there's a, a certainly a political undercurrent to everything that goes on in both local and federal politics. Huh. And how many um there's a lot of colleges down there. Do all of them help work in some sort of mitigation of the Everglades? There are almost at all major research universities to my knowledge in South Florida and even perhaps ones you would not call major research universities are doing work in or around the Everglades. There's, well, I guess a relatively large amount of research dollars to go around just because there is that, that um, state and federal funding. Uh, I know that uh, FSU, UF, FGCU, um, us at FIU, Florida Atlantic, you know, Lane Kiffin, they're all <laughs> working on stuff, University of Miami. So there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff from fish to alligators to turtles. And then the Everglades is bigger than just the, the freshwater Everglades that, that our lab works in, but also uh, the coastal Everglades and the mangrove zone. And the park actually extends into Florida Bay. So there's a lot of uh, I mean, shark stuff, seagrass stuff, there's a lot of other stuff that it's that same pool of funding. So I'm assuming since you, since there's so many working and doing the same thing, you guys probably have conferences and... 
Yeah, we have some uh, some local conferences that are pretty much all about Everglades restoration. There's one uh, coming up this spring. It's a biannual conference. It's called uh, Gear, the Greater Everglades Ecosystem Restoration, something like that. I do not remember the acronym. I uh, just registered. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Now, have you ever presented at any of these? Yeah, so this will be my first year because this will be the uh, May will be the end of my second year. So this will be my first year. I presented some research at a, the Ecological Society of America conference last year. So that's for pure ecology. Uh, that's the biggest conference for that, uh, probably in the world, certainly in this country. And then at some smaller conferences and things like that. So right now, like, what does the federal government, if there's a grade A to F, what would the Everglades be graded? Because I live near the Chesapeake Bay, and it's it's a D, and like it's good because before it was like a D minus. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, what is it down? The Everglades overall is probably in a similar spot. They use a stoplight system, so they use instead of the a letter system, they use green, a yellow, and red. And I am not 100% positive about uh, what the reports are from uh, the past years or for, uh, you know, other, there's a lot of other labs doing other stuff, but I know that in our lab's last report, and it's, it's by category too, not just overall, but uh, invasive species actually ended up getting a, a red light last report or two reports ago for the first time ever uh, because of largely African jewelfish and their population just kind of exploded. And they are sort of uh, the central tenet of my, my work and my dissertation. Yes. I'm going to look at the African jewelfish. Now, what I've heard the most when it comes to the Everglades is the uh, python. And I heard that's like decimating mammals and populations of all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Um, so the, the pythons and that, so the python work is a little controversial because mm -hmm. they have, it's a small study and they did not. It's, it's difficult to, to get into the Everglades unless you have a lot of funding because you have to, you've got to rent a truck, you've got to rent a boat, you have to get permits to get in the park and catch these things. So it's, it's difficult to get large sample sizes and it takes time. And mammals are just not at high densities out there anyway. So it's difficult uh, to get those data. So in light of those difficulties, I think the study was, was pretty well done, but it has been criticized for low sample size and a number of other things. So I think that's important to acknowledge. But there's no doubt that when you bring in an apex predator, a snake that can hit 20 <laughs> feet, the longest snake on the planet is the Burmese python. And it's only a matter of time until they hit those lengths in South Florida. And not only that, because there's so much water in the Everglades, they are sort of freed from this body size to length ratio restriction that most other constrictors have except for anacondas because they live in the water so that's why anacondas are so much fatter because the water holds up their body weight so the the long-term outlook is is not so high i would say and that there are certainly uh, even if they're not quantified or well understood there are definitely big differences that are happening and there's been evidence of trophic cascades um, or near trophic cascade. So a trophic cascade has to be through three levels in the food web. And but the, so the pythons are eating these mammals, and then the mosquitoes that feed on the mammals, and they used to feed on rats and rabbits and possum things of that size, are now feeding more on humans because those mammals they used to feed on are going away, and that is leading to the spreading of disease among humans that's transmitted by mosquitoes that used to not be a big deal. And this has all been like proven. Like yeah, that, that was in uh, the Miami Herald, that article was published in the newspaper. So then the natural thing would be to get rid of the pythons. And I've heard of contests and in which they give out money to people who catch the most. Is there more effective ways to do it, or is the only way to get people out we, there? We need to find some more effective ways, because people hunting them, they are very difficult uh, to find. And... It, I've seen three, and I have spent over the past two years a lot of time in the Everglades and around the Everglades. And, I mean, they have, I think, 30 or so python hunters that the state pays, and they'll pay them $8 an hour to go look for these snakes, and then there's a flat fee, I forget what it is, it's like 50 or 75 bucks or something a snake. And then every foot over four feet, there's an additional, I think it's $50 per foot. So if you get a big snake, you can... 
make a decent amount of money. And people are pulling out 17, 18 foot snakes pretty regularly, it seems like. Mm. And they uh, they update all that on their uh, social media. So the, the South Florida Water Management District Facebook page is always posting pictures of the snakes uh, that people catch. And they have a weekly update on the total number of pythons removed. And uh, that number, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it is not exactly impressive relative to the overall population of pythons, which some people have estimated to be 100,000 snakes. Oh. And a female, a female can lay 70 eggs. And mm -hmm. I think the number of total pythons removed to date since the removal project started is under 3,000. That is an incredible number. Now, um, when we talk about the Everglades, like how many square miles would we consider the Everglades to put 100,000? So we can kind of do the math and see how many. Well, so the, the, the 100,000 is like the whole range mm. of the, the python population. So that's going up to like the I-4 corridor between Tampa and Orlando and probably even a little more of that. But um, do you know off the top of your head how big the Everglades actually are? No, I don't know what the, okay. uh, the square mileage mm. is on that. No. But it's, uh, it's tricky because the Everglades National Park is what is really the only thing that is technically the Everglades, but the Everglades ecosystem historically extended all the way up to Lake Okeechobee, which is a much, much larger area than just the National Park is. Yeah, the National Park is about 4,000 square miles. <laughs> so yeah, I wonder how big the, the whole Everglades system is. Well, so yeah, we'll it's, take it's easily double that. Okay. So um, why don't we double back and talk about the African jewelfish. You said that is um, a huge invasive species in the Everglades. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that um, species? So the African jewelfish is a pretty popular fish in Aquaria. They are uh, sparkly, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, they look, are very fond of yeah they, look, they look fairly pretty, and I've seen... I'm in the fish hobby, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that'd be something that if I was a freshwater... Yeah, aquarist, um, and they have some, some pretty high uh, variability in their traits that they display in tanks too. And I think it's somewhat related to substrate, but there is uh, no studies on that to my knowledge, at least. But they're pretty cool fish. Uh, they're kind of a, a bright red, and then sometimes an olive, so red kind of underneath on the stomach, and then uh, sort of olive on the top half, and then they sort of have these iridescent blue-green spots, and that's what the uh, the wild type, at least in South Florida, looks like. But in, in Aquaria, they can be very bright red. They can also be sort of a, a white or almost translucent color or pinkish. So there's some pretty high variability there. They are extraordinarily aggressive fish. Uh, you, they will tear each other apart in tanks if they don't have enough space. And you can't keep very many of them together. And they do not play well with friends at all. So they, they eat anything you know, that fits its ships. And they're, they have been in uh, South Florida in the canals since the 50s, I believe. But their invasion to the park is more recent. And then really in 2012, their population started to really take off. And it sort of peaked in 2016. And that was sort of when uh, I got, really got started and everything got moving on my involvement with all of this. And since then, the population has actually sort of collapsed, it looks like. So, and there's a little bit of precedent for that. The, uh, the pike killifish is another mm -hmm. non-native invasive species, and it did, uh, its population had did a very similar thing. So it was you know, thought there was going to be this huge, uh, you know, just taking over. The population's going up and up and up, and then it kind of crashes, which seems to be a little bit of a trend that we've seen. But the, the jewelfish have... Uh, even though the population's collapsed, there's there's no doubt that they... It hasn't collapsed all the way. They're still out there. There's some talk that... So they have... Cichlids in general have a massive salinity tolerance. And there's some thought that potentially... Uh, last year was an extremely wet year in South Florida. Hurricane Irma, and then there were two rainstorms that dropped more rain than the hurricane. So essentially, two or three hurricanes worth of rain came through a ridiculous amount of fresh water. So it's thought that um, potentially some of the jewelfish might be just be in habitats further south in the coastal zone that they weren't in before because they got access, easy access, with all that extra fresh water. And then because they can tolerate salinity that is saltier than seawater, double seawater. 
Yeah, I've heard that, and I've seen it in presentations with invasive species that they go high and high, and then they just have a huge crash, and then they kind of level out, or they kind of go back up again. Yeah. Um, and I've heard that with the Asian clam and um, the northern snakehead, at least around here, because like the Asian clam was huge, and then it just died off, and no one knew what was going on or what was causing it. So they're kind of thinking like that's the same thing. So maybe like the jewelfish just hit that peak and is like now a part of the ecosystem. <laughs> but Yeah, that's know. kind of a, and that's a common trend and that really holds up with uh, strict ecological theory and population ecology that there's a, a carrying capacity, there's a certain number of individuals that the ecosystem can sustain and when you're a novel species to the ecosystem, you're using up resources and you overshoot that carrying capacity and once you're above that, you're essentially you've already produced too many individuals in younger generations, but that by the time those generations are older, the population is falling apart because there's too many individuals to sustain. And then you fall back down, and sometimes it balances out and sometimes it doesn't. So both of these, the, um, the Burmese python and the jewel fish, don't know about the killie fish, but those probably came from the aquarium or pet trade. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. The pythons. So a lot of even a lot of fish. The the story is Hurricane Andrew. Hurricane Andrew came okay. through, knocked out, especially for the pythons, knocked out a breeding facility, and then they just slithered into the swamp and hung out ever since. So there's really no way to control that except have all these animals like in the middle of the country where they, <laughs> where if anything happens, they're going to you know not take over. Yeah. If you're breeding, I think that. Uh, the most effective management step or policy step, if you want it to 100%, 100% prevent uh, things, the tropical species from getting out and into invading environments in other countries, is to breed them in locations indoors where if they did escape, they would not be able to survive, or at least not survive the winter. So that's really the only thing inhibiting the python spread is really the, the cold weather. And then occasionally, it's the same thing in South Florida with the fish. A lot of these fish from the aquarium trade are already in South Florida at the northern extent of their temperature tolerance. So if you get a cold snap, like there was, I think it was either 2011 or 2012, there was a cold snap. And that really knocked down uh, mine cichlids, which are another non-native species in the Everglades that's very prevalent. So it really knocked down those numbers. And then sort of after the mine cichlids were knocked down was really when the, the jewelfish were sort of able to take off. Which is interesting because now we're seeing that the jewelfish population has dropped off. It's that the mine cichlid population has uh, sort of supplanted them as the most abundant non-native species now. Yeah, and it's like it's like an unfortunate thing because like looking at the at the jewelfish and these they're smaller fish. They're not like going to be fishing, go out and eat, and kind of yeah. Tell there's people, there's hey, not really a shot at uh, <laughs> building a, a market for jewelfish like they're trying to do for lionfish or something. Mine cichlids are. Very, very nearly tilapia sized when they are full grown. They're a little bit smaller than that, but they're pushing that size. So maybe you could for those. But if they don't taste good, no one's going to do Yeah, that's like, um, I don't know if you heard it, but it might have been two years ago in around, and then around uh, Seattle. They had Atlantic salmon. And of course, something happened and they all escaped. Oh, yeah, so, like, yeah, just, just fish as much as you want and get as many salmon out. <laughs> Of the way. Now, like, yeah, if anything happens like that in Florida, with like a smaller fish, no one's going to care. Yeah, and in the national park, you can't, there isn't public fishing or anything like that. So it's, uh, it's just, that, that approach is, is difficult. Now, in other parts in the greater Everglades ecosystem, there are certainly areas where there's lots of public uh, fishing and hunting and that kind of stuff, and those are very important elements of management and policy. Uh, and people certainly like to catch non-native species. I mean, the peacock bass was introduced to South Florida for recreational fishing. And these are, these are huge fish, top predators. And they have stayed in the canals. And that was sort of the why it was okay to introduce them was because that was the argument, that they would not be able to get into... Whoa, that's the fish. And they... Yeah, I mean, people come from from Delaware to come fish these in South Florida. Yeah, well, I looked them up and they look pretty awesome. I would definitely love to catch one of those <laughs> if 
follows ever around. But I mean, like, the fact that it's there is kind of disappointing. Um, so can people eat these? Yeah, you can definitely eat peacock mm. bass. They are, I mean, they're big top predators, much larger than a largemouth bass. Um, not a bass at all. They're cichlids from South America. People just like to name things bass because... Because <laughs> <laughs> then it sounds cooler. Yeah. Striped bass, rock bass. <laughs> it's like changing, yeah, changing names is always interesting to make it more desirable. It's like the Chilean sea bass. That's yeah. not a sea bass. <laughs> like, yeah, I heard they're trying like to change the, the snakeheads to Chesapeake pike. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think snakehead just sounds cooler. And I'd rather catch something called a snakehead than a Chesapeake pike. Yeah. But nobody wants to eat the snakehead. <laughs> <laughs> I've had snakehead. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, our buddy caught it. it. Yeah, our buddy caught it. It was like two pounds and we cut it up. It's pretty good. Not gonna lie. Um, if people give it a chance. Yeah. But, um, but at a restaurant, you have no idea what you're looking at, and you're like, "Oh, <laughs> lemon butter snakehead." Like, what, what am I eating right now? Are there fangs in there? <laughs> um, now, do you know like any other issues like plants that would be invasive to the Everglades, or is that not get as much talk? We must have non-native plants in the Everglades, but I'm not. Uh, the person for that. So, <laughs> I know that uh, there are a number of non-native plants in Florida that are a big deal. And I know I've seen some presentations about some of that. There's a large uh, state organization that looks at bringing in essentially insects from the native range of these plants to try and control the plant populations. And then they have little uh, mesocosms like enclosures at their facility where they test it to see what happens when these insects come in, do they really eat the plants, how do they interact with uh, native insects that are in there too, and that kind of thing. And the whole goal is that these will come in and they will only eat the species that you intend them to, to eat, which is something that I, as a scientist, am highly uncomfortable with. Uh, maybe that's the Jurassic Park in me, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> it never goes the way you planned it. But uh, there haven't been any horror stories from that yet, at least. It's not like when they introduced the mongoose to, uh, to Hawaii or anything like that. <laughs> but small herbivorous insects is a very different uh, different ballgame than the mongoose in Hawaii. <laughs> so, um, what would you say would be is your favorite part of what you do? Uh, driving the airboats and riding around in helicopters is definitely the coolest part of what we do. It's, uh, I mean, not many people get to go as far into the park as we get to go and driving an airboat for an hour and a half into to what is, is federally mandated or is wilderness and is subject to different law. You cannot have, like we have to go before the, the wilderness committee every so often and argue that we have to take airboats in there or that we have to take the helicopter in there because you're not allowed to use machines in wilderness. Like you can't ride a bike through wilderness. So it's it's cool to be able to be out there and to see that and to just look around for an hour and a half while you're going to our furthest site in the Everglades, just looking around. It, it really is being like being on a different planet or a different continent from what you're used to. So besides the people you're with, how many people would you see in a given day? Like if, if, if you're out there, if you see one other boat, that's a rarity when you're out there. And the, so the only people that are out there are research labs and then uh, Fish and Wildlife, the Water Management District, uh, USGS. But our, our lab is out there uh, a lot because we, we sample for our our well, we have several projects that sample uh, many times throughout the year. Our biggest project samples five months out of the year. And when we do that, we're going from the southernmost freshwater areas of the park and even to outside of the park to areas in the water conservation uh, areas north of the park. And we even have work that goes all the way into the stormwater treatment areas, which are just south of Lake Okeechobee. So drive time, that's like a two and a half hour plus drive between the sites if there were roads and things. And so we cover a lot of distance and we do a lot of samples in each sampling period. So we spend a lot of time out there and we very rarely see other people, even from other 
you know, other universities, our university, other agencies, it's, it's very rare to see somebody else. Hmm. We see a lot of planes. That's the, the fun game is, is it a plane or is it an airboat? Because airboats have plane engines. So until uh, you've been out there a while, you can kind of get an ear for the difference in where it's coming from. But the sort of the northeastern corner of Everglades National Park is actually specially designated as like a training area for people getting their pilot's license. So there are planes flying around all the time. And then as you move south, we see a lot of jets because of the Air Force Base that's down there. Huh, that's kind of cool. Um, so, how often do you see gators? Because we haven't talked about oh, gators. gators at all. <laughs> gators you see all the time. The gators really hang out uh, the most in the canals. But then, uh, the stormwater treatment areas have a lot of big gators. They have uh, some nutrient enrichment going on, and they're supposed to. That's what they're designed to do, is pull the nutrients out before the water moves south. But that results in uh, some very big alligators. Uh, there was uh, an incident where some divers were needed to retrieve some things from the bottom of the canal, and they refused to get in the water until there was a gator wrangler present. So, <laughs> so does he just stand there and just if he sees one, does he jump on top of it? He, like, he might <laughs> jump on top of them, but he just stood there the whole time. <laughs> I don't think that one. Gators are—they just leave you alone, really. Unless you're harassing them, they kind of—they'll see you and then they'll just leave you alone. I've had one mildly sketchy experience with a gator. Uh, we have this one site we call it Sunken Road because eventually you get to this point where the road just kind of dips down and has sunk and to the point where most of the year it's below the water level. So you can't drive down in it anymore. It's, a, it's right next to a canal. And we were coming back. We, you have to walk all the way down this road and then you hang a left and you have to walk out in the marsh. And we were coming back and there's just this giant gator. It's like a, a standard one car width dirt road. And this gator's snout was off the left-hand side of the road, and on the right-hand side of the road you'd see tips, and its tail was hanging back off the road. <laughs> this is probably the biggest gator I've seen down there. So we had, we have these uh, like copper pipes that make up uh, the sides of the trap that we use, and they come out to make it easier to carry when we have to walk this far. And we took them out, and we were kind of hitting them together like sound sticks to try and scare it off, and we were a good 50 feet away still because it was a very large gator, and I'm not messing with that. So it did not care at all. We're sitting here banging these things, and, and the girl I'm with is like Googling, how do you move an alligator? <laughs> and I'm like, you're wasting your time. Why are you doing this? <laughs> so then I finally am just going to give up, and I turn around to put the poles, just like we carry around. We drag a sled with us that we keep our gear in. Uh -huh. and I'm just putting the poles back on the sled, and then when I turn back around, the alligator's just gone. <laughs> so I was like, where did it go? I didn't see which way it went. I have no idea where it was now. <laughs> so then we have a, like some dip nets with us, uh, just like a, a net sort of like you they used to clean the pool with the nets deeper and the pole on these is about five feet long. And so I have this five foot wooden pole that I'm holding out in front of me <laughs> to, to poke a gator in the face if it jumps at me. But uh, it did not. It was, it was long gone. We didn't see it again. But I didn't know that at the time. So I'm walking past yeah. and about and where it was laying there's like an opening into the canal and an opening to sort of a backwater on the other side. So it could have been sitting under the water, like just washing us on either side. <laughs> but of course, that's the watching Jaws one too many times in me, I guess. But uh, uh, just on the other side of that, a big fish was next to the, the path, and it sort of did a 180 and went away and it splashed. And when it did that, I jumped out <laughs> of my boots and spun and poked the stick right where it was. But it was it was probably just a open or a gar or something. You know, Completely harmless to me. Yeah, but, but that that still would scare the crap out of. Yeah, <laughs> I know a normal person besides a fish wrangler or a gator wrangler. You know, like if I saw one, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> I might try to Google it. <laughs> Just like <laughs> I mean, I love gators and all, but they're cool to watch and they're cool to see. We have to be careful because they like to sit in the airboat trails a lot because they're. Uh, on the edge of the airboat trail, you're kind of sitting on the edge of the grass, and there's an opening where the, the boats have been going, so the there's not really grass growing there, so they can get direct sunlight right there. And especially this time of year when it's cold, a lot of times coming back in the afternoon, the gators are all on the edges of the trail trying to warm up, so you're, you're dodging gators right and left on your way back. So they don't move out of the way when you hear this giant airboat coming? They're a little on the slow side, especially when they're cold, since they're cold-blooded. It, it's noticeable. They're much faster getting out of the way in the summer than in the winter. Hmm. 
So let, let's say you, someone screws up and accidentally hits one. Are you obligated to if, do anything? If a gator is, if there's a gator mortality because of anything that we do, which there has never been, just for the record, <laughs> we have to report that to the national park. Huh. I'm kind of interested to see like what the national park will say. If <laughs> it can, it's a big deal. They are because one, they're so iconic, and two, because of the short hydro period, the lack of water really in the park. Uh, a decent number of the gators are sort of malnourished because there's not they they need that deeper water habitat and they make uh, essentially what are called they're called alligator ponds or alligator holes and in the dry season that's where the gators hang out and they're some of the only places that have water left so all the fish congregate there so they kind of dig out these holes and over time they get bigger and bigger and they maintain entrances into them and all kinds of other things when you step into them it can be a two or three foot drop. You can go up being a foot and a half of water and being four feet of water in a step. And you can feel where they, they dig it out, but at, they're not only making a spot where they can be in the dry season and still be under the water, but they're also essentially making an all-they-can-eat buffet and just concentrating all these fish in there. But the, uh, the hydro period issues, among other things, has led to uh, a decent degree of malnourishment in a lot of gators in the park. The gators are are probably, on average, bigger and healthier further north where there's more water. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. Um, so are there any other species that you would encounter that would, you know, kind of scare you a little bit? Anything else? Uh, just the gators and the pythons. Mm -hmm. the, I've never been afraid during a gator encounter yet. I was certainly cautious during that last one, but I was not scared at all. And then two of the three pythons I've seen have been from the airboat, and we were just sort of driving past, and they were sunning themselves, and then they just dove into the water and were gone. And uh, the people I was with didn't see them because they were probably asleep because we were coming back in the afternoon and people fall asleep on the airboat. <laughs> Hopefully our boss isn't listening. <laughs> but, <laughs> All right, Peter, so let's kind of get into um, the birds. Um, of the Everglades because I'm sure you see a ton of them and especially during migrating season all the birds up here seem to disappear so I'm, I'm assuming you get to see them at that, is that correct? Yeah, we get a lot of birds. Our lab uh, our, my advisor, our boss, likes to joke that we study fish food, which is really the truth. That's what people, people don't care about the fish, they're not coming to look at the fish for the most part, they're coming to look at these birds. Uh, the, the big one, the federally listed one, is the wood stork, and those, uh, when you look like a stork, you think of say, your baby book where the bird was flying in when you were born, that's a stork, and wood storks more or less look like that. Uh, roseate spoonbills are a big one, they're very pink, very colorful, people are... Like a flamingo? <laughs> yeah, they're pink like a flamingo, but they have this very distinct bill uh, that looks kind of like a spoon, it's like thick at the... Well, relatively narrow at the base, but thicker than like a heron or something, and it's very flat, and then it uh, narrows a little bit before it goes back out into sort of like a spoon at the end. Mm -hmm. Then we get uh, several species of egret, several species of heron, great egret, um, snowy egret, blue heron, tricolor heron, little blue heron, lots and lots of waiting birds. So like at a certain time of the year, how many people do you think are down there bird watching? Oh, I have no idea, but there are tons of people that come on the airboat rides uh, to do those tours. There are lots of people from, it feels like Northern Europe, actually, like a disproportionate amount. Certainly more than expected. And, well, the funniest thing is, is when it's really tourist season, uh, and you'll be coming back into the boat ramp, and we're wearing hats and sunglasses and wind buffs and covering all our skin, because sunscreen is nasty and oily, so we just cover everything to avoid the sunburn. And there, they'll like see us, and it's like, oh, swamp people, and they're like taking pictures of us. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard bird people are crazy, like they'll go 5,000, 10,000 miles to see a bird. Yeah, but bird people are very intense, and they know what they want. <laughs> <laughs> but the good thing is they're bringing money to help you yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Study, so. They are certainly helping out. They're very. Not only does the 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 money from them traveling 
feed back into conservation, but a lot of times they're directly helping the bird conservation. There's lots of, um, I don't, I don't want to say amateur, but non-professional bird counts. You know, they're not getting paid to do it, but they have been probably watching birds uh, their whole retirement or longer and are really good at it. So, um, poaching. Have you ever heard any poaching while you've been around or seen any? Not while I've been around, but I have seen a guy carrying a gun and just like a, a rifle and he just had like a belt of bullets around him one time. That wasn't in the, the national park, that was in the water conservation areas. Actually, actually that, that was in the park. That was right on the, the edge of the park. Well, technically just outside. It was on the other side of the canal from the national park, but like if He's literally 15 feet from the National Park. And then he was just walking around with a gun. And uh, it's like Rambo-style bullets just waltzing around. Like, no big deal. We drove past, and he just, like, waved and smiled like it was a very normal thing. And, <laughs> and then not 15 minutes later, we saw people from the Water Management District. And they were like, who are you guys? Do you guys have business cards? And we're like, we're... I'm a student, she's a research technician, like, we, we don't, we don't have business cards. Like, what do you mean you have business cards? <laughs> but then we were like, but we did just see this guy with a, a big gun and lots of bullets, so maybe you want to talk to him? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> yeah, I feel like with such a vast area, it's got to be tough to prevent poaching. Unless, you, unless the guy's back over and over and over again in, like, the same sort of area and kind of get a, an idea. I think that the reason that there probably isn't a lot of poaching is one, outside there's not really anything to poach. There are definitely easier places where it's less risk of a penalty if you're trying to poach gators. And there's also better spots for Florida panther if you're trying to poach Florida panther. And outside of that, I don't know what else you'd even try and poach. Deer in Florida are small and people hunt them, but they're, they're deer. You know, you can do that anywhere illegally. So, um... Let's go over this, your top five favorite fish that you have seen in the Everglades. Invasive or non-invasive? They're just like, whoa, this is I Well, incredible. one, I have to say the African jewelfish. They're sort of my, my baby at this point. They really got me interested uh, going down this, this path, uh, career path and this research path. Next, uh, one of the coolest is probably uh, the peacock eel or the spotfin spiny eel. It's got a few common names. But they have these little noses, sort of reminiscent of uh, maybe like an anteater or something, or like a, a butterfly's nose. And the, mm -hmm. they sit in the, the loose mud at the top of the soil, and they just sit there. And they're hidden, and you can't really see them. And then they'll just like dart up and get a fish and like sit back down. And we do... Uh, electrofishing. We have an airboat that has these metal arms that come off the front. There's like essentially wires that go into the water and it emits this electric current. And when you're in an, an area that has these, you pull the boat into an alligator pond and you, you turn the machine on and you wait a second and then you can just see them all coming out of the, <laughs> of the sediment and they just sort of float up a little bit. And then, yeah, then we catch them. It's pretty cool. How big can they get? I'm not sure what their max size is. Most of the ones that we catch are probably just under a foot. They're probably 8 to 12 inches. Hmm. Looking online, you can. it even shows you 12 steps on WikiHow how to keep a peacock eel. Yeah, they're definitely hmm. popular huh. aquarium fish. They have spots on uh, the, the tail of the colophon, sort of similar to peacock feathers, which is how they got the name. And then spotfin spiny eel is because, unlike a lot of uh, true eels, they have a dorsal fin with a very spiny spine, and I can tell you that uh, from personal experience being stabbed <laughs> by it. <laughs> yeah, it says it gets to about a foot. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Alright, so what would be your next one? Be number three. Uh, we, a lot of these, well next I guess I'll, I'll jump to a native fish. I think that bowfin are very cool fish. There's yeah. some of the uh, most ancient fish from a, I guess an evolutionary perspective we'll say uh, they just have they're very bony their their skull is not like a typical fish skull it's bone the whole way around uh, fused and they're just these 
just like one big long muscle basically and they when they swim their their dorsal fin and their caudal fin are fused and it just kind of undulates and you can when you're sitting there watching them they look they look pretty cool and they get uh, they can get a, some color too in the breeding season some greens and some blues that are are pretty cool looking and they have some teeth too so definitely don't try and lift those <laughs> <laughs> and now um, if I went fishing would getting a bowfin be difficult were they like a pretty easy no I think that they are pretty easy to get rod and reel and they are all over the east coast and probably up in Canada even and they a lot of fishermen think that they are just trash fish because they're not something you really want to eat because mm -hmm. they're very bony fish in general they're probably hard to clean but uh, a lot of people will just take them and just kind of they catch one they'll just like chuck it up on the bank because they think that they're just like trash fish but one of the cool things about bowfin is that they're they're obligate air breathers so they have to breathe atmospheric air to get enough oxygen yeah there's one of the um National Aquarium in Baltimore, and that thing is massive, and it's really cool. Oh, yeah, they get big, too. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, I didn't realize how big bowfins actually get. Um, that's still probably not even the max. <laughs> yeah, pretty they big. can then, yeah, certainly yeah, probably pushing three feet. Yeah. Okay. You got any uh, other fish that just amaze you when you see them? I think that, uh, well, the pirate perch is a pretty cool fish. They're certainly not exclusive to the Everglades, but they're, the cool thing about them, I guess, is just that their anus is in their throat. <laughs> so we affectionately like to call them the ass mouth fish. But uh, that's just kind of a cool physiological thing. And what's the reason for doing that? That is one of the great mysteries of, of evolutionary. <laughs> there are some hypotheses on that. But it, it's, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to move your excrement closer to your mouth and gills. So there's, uh, there's some theory that I'm not very familiar with, but I don't think any of it is very compelling. So um, I'm going to try to look at YouTube, and let, I would love to see if it has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so you got one more left. It's tough Ooh. to fill the last spot. Uh, there's a few that come to mind, but I think I'm going to go with a native fish, the Everglades Pygmy Sunfish. So the Everglades does not have a lot of uh, indigenous or endemic species because it's a geologically young system. So there just hasn't been time for a lot of species to, to speciate there. But the Everglades Pygmy Sunfish is one of the few. And they... Uh, get some really good coloration going on. They're very small fish. When you say pygmy, how small are we talking? Uh, the average size that we catch is probably only a centimeter or two. Yeah, because they look like a really cool fish. fish. They look really cool. Yeah, they get, I mean, they probably don't get more than two inches long. That's probably a big one, it's two inches. <laughs> But they, there's a, a lot of people who are into to the freshwater aquarium scene are very into pygmy sunfish. There's a few different species. I know there's an Okefenokee species. I think there's even a second uh, species that's endemic to Florida besides the Everglades pygmy. Yeah, we, we just looked up uh, one, and it's about 1.25 inches. So I'm assuming the rest are going to be just about the same. It's yeah, really small. The same size. Yeah, so you can get a ton in a tank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Now, um, what is one thing you haven't done in the Everglades that you want to do before you end <laughs> your PhD? That is a tough one. I am... It would be cool to catch a python. I have no idea what I'm doing, so I would certainly need some help <laughs> and some assistance, but I think it would, be, it would certainly be cool to catch one. It would also be... I think I will never do this, <laughs> but I think it would be awesome to snorkel in one of the canals. The water is very clear, and if there were not alligators everywhere, it would be really cool snorkeling, especially in the dry season, because just like the fish concentrate in the alligator ponds, they concentrate in the canals, so there's just fish everywhere. Like You're just looking in it, and you can just see fish everywhere. Have you ever heard of uh, the thing called a hex suit? No. It, it, it blocks your electrical waves. And it's super awesome. It's like a thousand dollars. But I heard this um, on Joe Rogan podcast. So shout out to Joe Rogan. 
Um, but people use it when they go spearfishing. And you can just get it right up to sharks and whatnot. It is insane. And I've seen a video of someone getting up to a alligator or crocodile. And what they do is like, they don't even notice them. So that is a way you can do if you wanted to. <laughs> when I find um, that grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's super cool. So we're, we're trying to look it up right now. But they have them for land and, and water. Don't know what like exactly what they do on land. I would be but, not confident in that for a gator. Yeah, it is, it is really cool. I'll have to show you in a little bit. And I would but. certainly not be swimming next to a crocodile. Yeah, you have to let me know if that is something you you would want. Because <laughs> I always thought when I was growing up to like get in a in a fake gator and just sink it to the bottom and I'd be okay. But now with like a hex suit, I would totally I would totally get one of these. Um, yeah, we'll have to look it up uh, with some different stuff. But um, yeah, so how much? How much longer do you have in your program? I have at least two and a half, if not three and a half years. It just kind of takes however long it takes, but uh, four or five years is about what it, it normally is. Mm -hmm. So um, by the time your program is going to be ending and you're graduating, um, the five-year outlook of the Everglades, what do you think it would be? I don't know if it will be tremendously different in five years. There is... Uh, Restoration is sort of a, has a lot of momentum, and certainly, uh, at least over the past uh, decade and a half, has had plenty of funding. I think. Uh, I think that the the new Florida governor seems to be uh, pro Everglades. I think that most politicians in Florida pro Everglades. It's a very important part of uh, of Florida. I mean, it is. It is the, the freshwater source for a lot of Florida, for the entire greater Miami area. But there, I think that they're just going to kind of keep plodding on slowly but surely. And part of it is that uh, it's just going to take time. You can't rush into restoring flow because if you do that, uh, odds are that you'll end up you know, accidentally nutrient loading and increasing that phosphorus, which is very important to maintain at, at low enough levels. So it'll just be, uh, I think, sort of slowly increasing restoration of flow. Uh, there's some projects right now, like the uh, US 41 Tamiami Trail, is sort of the northern border of the park, and recently the mm -hmm. sort of the eastern edge of that has been uh, rebuilt into a bridge to kind of increase flow instead of the road just being a barrier. And then also on the eastern edge of the park, one of the projects I'm involved with is where they, they filled in they put plugs basically in the canal in a few spots to push more water into the park. So, what do you think is going to happen with like the population? You think that's going to affect the Everglades a lot more than what it's doing now? The human population. Yeah. It'll. Yeah, I think it undoubtedly does to some extent, but I think that a lot of people in South Florida are very conscious of the Everglades, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of people care. And they're not just apathetic about it, and they try to do their part. So, so we got this video of the hex suit. I'm just going to show Peter for a second, but dude, check it out. So hex suit is H-E-C-S, which is why I couldn't get any videos. But like, they just hang out, and I've seen a video of them. I think he touches a gator with his hand. So I might not just have to look up instead of like hex suit fishing, but they just do whatever they want. Like they know it's an object. So, but they don't know that it's a living creature, yeah. <laughs> which is really wild. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I guess that would be cheating. <laughs> For if you're spearfishing, I don't know. I don't know, like, the rules of that, but it did, it is badass. So if that was a gator, would you do that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> to my knowledge, at least, gators don't rely really on the electrical fields like sharks do. So I would not feel very comfortable even with my electrical fuel block. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times they say that if you're in the water with the gator, if you're like, when they say that even when you're diving, if you're under the water or on the bottom, that you're not, you're much less likely to be attacked, whether it's by a shark or a gator or any of that stuff. But 
I'll, uh, I'll leave that up to the Gator boys. <laughs> yeah, we can have someone test the theory before you jump in. That's probably something I would do. Yeah, you can ask Gator boy Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're going to start wrapping up this podcast. And um, yeah, we are talking earlier. We do this thing on the podcast every now and again called What Grinds Our Gears, What Really Grinds Our Gears. And I know Peter has a few things that really grind his gears. So we're going to have him pick one for this um, segment. You know what really grinds my gears? 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 Peter. So the, the biggest thing that's been grinding my gears recently is when people use the word believe to describe how they feel about things that are facts. Like uh, over the summer I was at the beach with my family and my aunt has been really into to 23andMe recently. So she, she, she you know, did the DNA test or whatever, and then she was trying to get my dad to do it, and he didn't want to do it for whatever reason. And then she looks at me and she goes, do you believe that there's DNA in the blood? And I was like, no, I do not. I know that there's DNA in the blood. It's like, I, it's like Dan, do you believe in gravity? Uh, I don't need to believe it. I know that it's yeah, a pen. It like if I say I don't believe in gravity and I drop this pen, like this pen still drops. So my belief is completely irrelevant. <laughs> so how often do you get into an argument about that with? <laughs> with <laughs> I I try to hold my tongue most of the time. Uh, I think that the area where that comes into play the most is with with climate change. When people say I don't believe in climate change, I sort of chuckle myself a little bit. <laughs> it feels like saying you don't believe in gravity. But I try to play nice with the other kids. <laughs> Alright, so that's what grinds Peter's gears. And right now, recently, what really grinds my gears is people using the word literally, literally all the time. <laughs> or using it incorrectly. And there's nothing worse than hearing that over and over again in a sentence. It's like, just figure out other words that you can put in or just don't use the word because it doesn't it's not relevant to this <laughs> like oh my god I, I, I think um, Bill Burr went on a rant about it too so I know it's not just me <laughs> that hates it it's definitely not just but, you <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is literally the best thing about it this is literally the best thing about it no it's not <laughs> um, yeah like it makes me just want to punch him in the face but <laughs> literally punch them in the face and that, people, is what grinds my gears. All right. Well, thanks for joining the podcast, Peter, again. Um, yeah. And um, we'll have to keep in touch and see how it's going down there. If you end up catching a, a Burmese python. Oh, yeah. Or getting an <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, and thanks for listening. Take care, everybody.